listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. And I'm Jordan McGillis. Joining us today to discuss his new book, Precipice, The Left's Campaign to Destroy America, is Nick Deulis. Nick is a chemical engineer, attorney, and businessman. During a career spanning 30 years, he served as the CEO or chairman of the board of five public energy companies. He's a regular media contributor and speaks extensively on the virtues of a carbon economy, the nobility of the worker and middle class, and the vital importance of individual rights. Nick, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Alex and and Jordan, thank you for having me. So in your book, you write, uh, the more times change, the more things stay the same. Today, coastal elites and the federal government continue to look down on regions like Appalachia and work to tax and squelch the lifeblood of the region. Back then, it was a whiskey tax. Today, it's an array of draconian regulation, de facto carbon tax, and policies aimed to help major coastal areas at the expense of flyover regions like Appalachia. This dynamic creates a chip-on-the-shoulder mentality of Western Pennsylvanians, the author's shoulder included. So tell us about growing up in Pittsburgh. how has the city and its culture influenced you as a businessman and um, now as the author of this new book? Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there in that quote that, uh, that you read, Alex, and, and it does tie very much back, as you indicated, to Pittsburgh. And in my experience, sort of growing up living in Western Pennsylvania, it, it's an experience I think that's been shared by many across a couple of generations. Uh, where early on in the development of the region and the city, especially with respect to its industrial growth, it was a very positive story. It was a story of the individual showing up, in many instances, first-generation or immigrant American, and having basically nothing but their name and their work ethic in being able to not just make a life for oneself, but to, to create wealth, to create value for, for oneself and one's family, and then to see a progression, a growth and evolution of that into subsequent generations, the, the kids and then the grandchildren, et cetera, where they would aspire to bigger and better things. All of it really premised on some of the, the underlying themes and principles that the Republic itself w- was built upon. And then came sort of the late 70s, early 80s, uh, which was a time when I was basically a, a kid in Western Pennsylvania that for a lot of reasons, and a lot of them reasons counter to those, those principles of, of the Republic that I just mentioned, Uh, you saw basically an economic devastation that occurred in the region. And very tough times, not just economically, but also socially and and from a cultural fabric. Families uprooted, a mass exodus out of the region, uh, big question marks with respect to uh, where this this city and where Western Pennsylvania and where, frankly, Appalachia was going to go. Because in many ways, Pittsburgh is, is the capital of Appalachia. So then you had along the, uh, the run of time horizon, the, the shale revolution, this resurgence, this innovation, um, this disruptive technology in the field of domestic energy, specifically natural gas. So this is horizontal drilling, um, completion technology to liberate prolific amounts of methane from shale deposits that were always there and we always knew they were there, but we couldn't do that economically, but technology and American ingenuity allowed that to happen. And what you saw because in many ways, the, the base of manufacturing and of any economy is domestic energy, the ability to produce energy, and you have manufacturing that sprouts up alongside it. You saw a resurgence, um, a resurrection, so to speak, of the middle class, of manufacturing, of a lot of those, those things that drove basically the health of the region. And what was interesting to me, and one of sort of the, um, sort of the, the, the genesis points of the book, was seeing that this innovation and this disruptive technology that completely revitalized the region, it was not achieved because of things like government or because of things like policies. It was actually achieved in spite of those. Many of those policies and many of the the government views or actions behind them, philosophies behind them, were aimed at stopping that very thing. But yet there it was, it happened, and it completely transformed the globe, continues to. We're seeing that in geopolitics today, not just uh, Western Pennsylvania or Appalachia. So to me, you know, the ability to preserve the achiever in their quest to create value for themselves, to innovate, um, to improve quality of life for a bunch of, call them customers, stakeholders, whatever you would like across literally the planet because energy is so fundamental. 
Um, that sort of references uh, some of the chip on the shoulder mentality and making sure that we're advocating in constructive public discourse to protect that from continuing to be able to occur versus um, policies or movements that are, that are aimed at stopping that very much. So in the book, you talk about the importance of creators and um, their role in our modern society. And uh, you warn today that there's a cultural bias against these people. So can you talk about who the creators are? Um, maybe name a few creators that you admire in today's, uh, in today's world. And uh, just talk a little bit about why it's important to push back against uh, the attack on people who are creating things. Sure. Um, creators, as you say, that's one of the, the three of the four um, classes that, uh, that I see out there when it comes to value. Uh, that is the most important of the three that are in the sort of value creation um, side of things or, or, or bucket, so to speak, which are, of course, the, the side you want to be on. And creators, many ways you can define them, of course, but I think maybe one of the best ways was Rand's reference to competent man, competent woman, uh, that type of, of a description. And they're basically creators of wealth. Now, these can be maybe as we stereotypically think of them in terms of innovators and intellectual property and inventing something. Uh, but I can tell you they also might be as something as important and fundamental as someone in a building trade. Uh, a carpenter can be a creator uh, from, from many different perspectives in terms of, of course, building something. And who do I admire you know, out of that group the most? Well, to a fault, I admire all of them. I may disagree with many of them, right? I may not understand uh, many of the creations uh, that they're bringing to bear to benefit uh, society and, and build wealth, but I do uh, admire all of them and, and respect all of them. But particularly, you know, maybe I'll make a few references to Western Pennsylvania. So Andrew Carnegie would certainly be one uh, that I would put up there and, and Frick would be another one. Again, not perfect individuals. I have not yet met a perfect individual. Uh, the first one would be my next one. But um, ones that I would admire from a, again, a regional perspective. I think uh, an individual like Elon Musk is interesting because you know, he's had such a prolific career. There are certain chapters in his career, like with PayPal and early on, that were clearly in the creator mode. Uh, look at something like Tesla. It's interesting to me because it's a bit of a mix. I think with Tesla, there's obviously advancements, innovation, et cetera, but there's also a business model that is very much built on subsidization, rent-seeking, those types of things, which are very much not in what I would consider to be the creator camp. So there are some interesting individuals that sort of span a spectrum of, uh, of what they've done and, and where they're at. And then there's a bunch of others that, uh, that are obvious, like Steve Jobs and, and whatnot. But I would say, again, I want to reemphasize that my, my personal favorites in terms of people I know on the creator class are typically carpenters, plumbers, building trades. Uh, those can be creators, very important ones as well. Uh, I want to dip into this a bit further on uh, some of the mixed components of different industries. Something that pops into my mind is the world of finance. Um, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Obviously, it's essential to business formation and, and growth of productivity, but uh, very entwined with government at, at times. For sure. Uh, capital markets and the finance industry sort of do mirror exactly uh, what you're talking about. On one hand, or on one end of the spectrum, the good end, they are, are classic and crucial enablers uh, of free enterprise, of value creation. They're the enablers that allow the creators to go out and do what they do. And, and the example, again, using a Western Pennsylvania example would be someone like Andrew Mellon, who was a classic enabler with respect to what he did to financing entities like Alcoa like what was at the time Consolidation Coal Company, which ultimately through the history, the 150 plus year history became the company that I'm working for now, which is CNX Resources. On the other end of that spectrum, to your point, you see, and I'm, I'm sad to say, I, I would say increasingly you see, which is a, a sad commentary, much of the capital markets um, that are aimed at the, again, the subsidy model, the creating regulation, um, creating process flow of value to move the dollar of value from, say, the creator or the enabler or the server that manufactured it, and then processing it via regulation, wiring it to go through a bunch of intermediaries that are typically capital market entities to take a cut from that stream of wealth creation or that value. Uh, you see that with everything from regulation of, of banking itself, where it favors the large, right, and maybe disfavors 
uh, the startups or, or the smaller uh, innovators that you could see. Uh, you see it with respect to a lot of climate policies that are looking at trade, uh, creating trading platforms where there's a stream of commerce and some notional commodity of a carbon credit or whatever the case might be. And the entity in the middle, it would be the platform to trade these things off of would take a small fee in exchange uh, for providing that service, et cetera, et cetera. So you see that increasingly, I think, in the capital markets. So I have to agree with, uh, with your assessment, Jordan, that today capital markets, uh, you see that cutting across both of these buckets of the four categories. And uh, unfortunately, I think you're seeing a growing piece of it uh, in the, the latter, not the, the enabler of, of wealth creation, but sort of the, the leaching of it uh, at the expense of those that are, that are creating it. So you've mentioned also uh, enablers and servers, who are the two other productive groups that you identify in your book. Um, can you just talk a little bit about them? Why are they important? What role do they serve in value creation and in our economy? Yeah, the, the enablers, I think, really fall under the best example that would have been the finance, banking, capital markets that we just spoke about. Um, another example of an enabler, just to sort of highlight how important they are, would be a, an operating room nurse that is basically assisting working on the team with the surgeon. The surgeon may be the creator in terms of creating, let's say, life with respect to uh, what their skill set is, is being able to, uh, to manifest in, but how good would even the best of surgeons be without a top team of uh, surgery, surgery room uh, surgical nurses? I wouldn't want to be the patient in that scenario. Um, so the enablers uh, are, are pretty uh, clear cut. We can think of examples big and small in our daily lives. The servers, to me, are in some ways the most interesting of these three, of creators, enablers, and servers, because they're very broad ranging. Um, some of them are quite obvious. Everybody gets the concept originally or initially. So that would be the example of a, a waiter or waitress in a restaurant. It would be the uh, example of, of somebody that is, is uh, taking care of lawns, a landscaping business, that type of thing, where effectively it's, it's an efficiency improvement. It's a utility maximization and sort of economics uh, parlance, right? You're maximizing utility. Um, you may not be creating what is there, but you're making what is there better. It's, it's, it's an incremental improvement and a maximization of economic utility, which is a great thing. Uh, but there's also another broad sort of spectrum of servers that sometimes, and I talk about this in the book, Precipice, that sometimes gets sort of an outsized um, influence and in waiting in society. And those are your classic professional athletes, musicians, entertainers, et cetera, um, which are great, great careers and, and great classic server professions, right? That's, that's entertainment, that maximizes utility, enjoyment, um, that improves society. But we tend, at least in Western society, to put an emphasis on that category or subcategory of servers that leads to maybe some, some outcomes that are, are less than optimal. So this goes back to you know, the, the culture of Hollywood or looking to your musician of choice for where you should stand on some substantive policy issue or hearing what an athlete has to say, a professional athlete has to say about something that doesn't have to do with athletics. And it's not that you would ever want to suppress those views, right? More, the more views in the, uh, the public marketplace of ideas, the better as far as I'm concerned, uh, being a big proponent of free speech and individual rights, um, the more the better, the more the merrier. But with respect to viewing them as subject matter experts that should drive policy formulations and decisions that are going to affect you know, millions or the creators, enablers, and fellow servers out there in society is something we need to think through beyond, I like how they sound on a recording, therefore I'm going to follow their views on whatever the case might be when it comes to policy. Well, you know, related to this inflation of, of the entertainment realm, um, I wanna bring up a, a study that, that came out in 2019. It, it wasn't the most rigorous of studies, it was performed uh, by Lego, the company that makes the, the stacking toys, um, but it was asking children what they want to be when they grow up uh, in the US, the UK, and China. And the results were really disturbing. Something like one third of children in the US that were surveyed by Lego said they wanted to be YouTube stars when they grow up, whereas over half of Chinese kids wanted to be astronauts. Um, so we've got, some, we've got something going very wrong here. 
for sure. Uh, I bring this up, uh, this this issue, not not the specific Lego study, but the uh, the issue that the study has has underlined that you mentioned in the book, and that's that I think I think the statistics that you just cited are actually understated. I believe it may be worse when you look at maybe not even just youth, but young adults and uh, professional uh, workers that are just starting their careers, what their ambitions were set at with respect to uh, wanting to be in life at a very young age and what the message is and what the collateral damage is of that. So if you take something, whether it could be a musical performer or a professional athlete or an influencer, so to speak, on social media, the statistical odds of what it would end up being is something akin to winning the Powerball lottery. And the collateral damage of not pursuing a career path that would be more substantive or statistically have a much better rate of return tied to it, it doesn't just have implications for the individual and the individual's family, but it has implications for national security, for culture, economy, et cetera. And maybe another way of saying that, Jordan, is that in many ways, I think that there is no such thing as a failed uh, creator, enabler, or server. Because even when one goes out trying to create something new um, in the creator bucket or to you know, start up a, a financing arm of something that would ultimately fail or to you know, start something new in the server category, there is still going to be a net incremental societal benefit that will enjoy the fruits of that labor, of that endeavor, even though it may have failed financially or it may not have ended up where the individual or the company or the team wanted that to end up. So in some ways, uh, there's a bunch of collateral damage tied to this as well, because individuals and then collectively the, the wider society, we're not getting the benefits of those incremental efforts and incremental attempts. I think there's an important point there. Uh, when people fail, like you said, uh, as creators or enablers or in any aspect of things, what their failure does is it produces sort of like negative knowledge, right? Like um, especially in the marketplace, you know, it tells people this, somebody went out and tried to create this thing and it turns out that consumers don't want it. Do you think that there's a problem maybe where we don't reward, well, you don't want to reward failure, but, um, maybe the, the punishment for risk-taking is, um, is, is too high or, uh, we, we don't reward risk-taking enough, uh, in our society. Yeah, I mean, some people sort of equate that to becoming soft and the nanny states and all these different sort of forms of it. And many of our institutions, not just government, but academia, et cetera, they sort of, uh, they nurture that. They, they, they basically build on that across an individual's life if you look at the, the progression. But, you know, there are some serious implications to this. Um, just with respect to meritocracy and competitiveness, you mentioned, again, the Lego study. The flip side of that, we were focusing more on the United States, but I talk about this on a chapter on STEM uh, prowess within, within Western society versus places like China. Um, that has huge implications when you're creating a true meritocracy and only the best of the best continue to progress in areas like STEM fields. That will manifest itself with GDP. That will manifest itself with respect to geopolitics, military preparedness, quality of life, competitive advantage or disadvantage, right? In the classic Adam Smith type of, uh, of an approach. So there are, you know, sort of nation implications and global implications of this trend, particularly if on one side, you know, we're diluting that and, and culturally wanting to shift to more of the, the image, right? Than the substance. And on the flip side are, call them adversaries or call them rivals are doing the exact opposite. And it doesn't take long at all for that to materially and substantively appear in, in these types of metrics that you can measure. And you see it in just even something like, like STEM graduates and, and university programs between the two nations. Um, so so that's, um, that's true. And then you know, this issue of the, the failure you know, side of things, um, it's almost to me akin to something that you see in, in biology, right? The, the human condition, and any sort of uh, species of animal that you find out there, it's, its DNA has evolved through the years to basically reflect the cumulative learnings of that species in terms of what didn't work. And you, know, you had specialization and you learned that these, there are certain dangers and risks and there was adaptations and refinements that occurred over millions and millions of years, of course, Darwin showed that. Uh, but if you stop doing that, if you create a system, an ecosystem, 
where that doesn't occur economically, let's say, that will create some serious risks within that organism, being a national economy or a regional economy or an individual family. And those weaknesses and those exposure areas in a world like today's, which is very volatile and very chaotic, you know, subject to all kinds of new and black swan type of risks, um, that can be a, a very dangerous proposition. And I think we're learning that in modern day with everything from you know, Ukraine to inflation to what's going on with just our, our fiscal situation uh, when it comes to, to governments and, and the economics tied to it. So the fourth category that you talk about in the book is the class that you call the leech. And obviously tied to a lot of the things that we've been discussing here is the impact that this class has on our economy and our society. So how do you define the leech and um, why are they a class of people that we need to be worried about? Yeah, in, in many ways, you know, I, I think it's probably most accurately to be described as, as more of an organism, a suprahuman. It's something that sits above the human, um, something more to be feared, I think, in, in terms of, uh, of, of what it can do and what it can impact. Um, so it's something to be, to be taken very seriously, to be respected. Um, basically, at the end of the day, I think the leech, the essence of it is it's an appropriator, a consumer of others' value. So it's not creating value, it's, it's consuming, it's appropriating value from those others that are creating, enabling, and serving free enterprise. And I think they've been along for, around for a very, very long time, pre-United States, uh, so, so pre-our our history, our national history. Um, but historically, and up until recently, I think they've been a piece of the overall stream of commerce, value creation, free economy, that was, yes, it was, a, it was a drag, it was an inefficiency, a cost for sure, but it was a manageable one. And the creators, enablers, and servers of free enterprise were able to perform and achieve in an environment under a set of road rules that allowed them to do so that basically overcame, compensated for, paid off as an inefficiency of what was going on with value appropriation with respect to the leech. And then through, again, with, with respect, through a very focused ground game and tactics in the short term, a strategic long game uh, that was manifest over decades. Uh, you go back to the, the United States and in our history with this, goes back to Woodrow Wilson, um, FDR with the New Deal, uh, Great Society with LBJ, uh, President Obama in, in his two terms. And then today it's completely, completely off the charts. But, but through that lineage, you saw first and foremost, you know, a larger and larger role of government uh, that was designed in many ways through regulation, through the bureaucracy to appropriate more and more value of the citizenry or the creators, enablers, and servers of free enterprise. And then you saw sort of a propagation of this through associated entities or affiliates such as academia, right? Going from say the marketplace of ideas to sort of basically a, a place of intolerance when it comes to free speech. Uh, creating more and more of a consumption of value to where a rate of return for most college degrees today doesn't exist. It's a broken business model or fiduciary model, so to speak. Um, you've seen this sort of get into areas uh, such as monetary policy with the Federal Reserve, where it's been designed now to impact and drive capital markets, create winners and losers, sometimes intended, sometimes unintended uh, with respect to its policies, opposed to facilitating free enterprise. Uh, and you see this with certain areas, unfortunately, like a discipline of my own in, in the legal profession, uh, where it went from enabling transactions in capitalism and, and helping things get done to one increasingly where it's more about the fight itself. And through that fight, you know, a, a nice uh, tidy fee is secured for both combatants in terms of the representatives, but the net loser is both parties in the end, right? So you see this starting to grow and propagate with respect to how much of the overall stream of commerce and how much of the overall economy today is predicated on the appropriation and consumption of value or of wealth that others um, have manufactured to the point where it literally has placed us on either call it a precipice or a tipping point, inflection point, whatever you'd, you'd want to, uh, to reference it as. And, and that's a, a frightening proposition. And we've seen this, I think, across a bunch of key measurable, tangible metrics. You see this with national debt um, in terms of its magnitude, absolute magnitude, 30 plus trillion percent of GDP. You see it with the mission scope of things like the Federal Reserve, you know, getting into things far beyond 
stable prices and, and interest rate, uh, moderate interest rates and all kinds of other things that it really knows nothing about in the end. You see it with what's going on, as I said, in academia and how it has completely transformed. Um, you just see it time and time again across very sort of visual, optical, as well as measurable areas. I think for the three of us, at least, um, obviously, we're, we're working to reverse this trend. Uh, Jordan and I, obviously, in the policy and education space and um, in the business space and in your community, um, based on what I know about your, your work, uh, you've obviously um, pushed for ideas that are trying to reverse this, these trends. Um, what are some things that we need to do in the short term to um, hopefully reverse uh, the trend? It's so much easier identifying problems and offering up solutions. But since you asked, I think there are there are a couple of very common sense approaches that would, at least from a a perspective of you know getting the most bang for the buck, uh, would, would get things moving in the right direction. Probably not sufficient in and of themselves, but but gets things definitely moving in the right direction. And and some of these things are items that are just we would want to embrace ourselves and our individual lives. One would be just a balanced budget approach, uh, fiscal responsibility from a government perspective. A very, you know, if you're opening up a corner store or you're starting up a business, you're basically applying what I call that cigar box of cash flow management, where the way you run that business, at least early on, is the cash coming into the cigar box can't, you know, be less than over time the cash that you're you're outlaying. And if there is a difference in that direction, you've got a problem at some point, probably sooner rather uh, than later. So I think that approach with a, a balanced budget for government is a very sensical thing that, uh, that should be adopted immediately. That would require instant assessment analysis of what we're doing across a whole range of, of different, uh, different areas that government's involved in. I, I think another interesting idea is in the arena of educational reform. Looked at this many different ways, all kinds of different proposals out there. But one thing that, that I see that's, that sort of piqued my interest was all this, this focus and investment on student debt forgiveness and defaults that are occurring with student loans. And from, from my perspective, again, this goes back to the broken business model, broken fiduciary duty of academia, uh, colleges and universities, where tuition is an asset bubble like no other. It makes any other asset bubble in equity markets and debt markets and real estate look benign compared to what's going on with tuition. And the job prospects, of course, pale in comparison to the tuition and the debt that students are taking on. So the answer to me, if you look at that situation, it's that the academic institution was the one that is warranting, come to us, invest all of your life savings, and then some, and go into a massive amount of debt. And on the back end of four years, we will have for you a degree that will allow you to go get a rate of return via a marketable set of skills in the, in the, in the job market. That's not occurring. So if you think of this just from a classic perspective of right and wrong, what I would do is say, all right, if there's a, a student debt loan problem, you know, to the tune of whatever it is, 1.7 trillion these days, and there's massive defaults that are occurring across the board, the answer is not to have the taxpayer bail out the student in that instance. If there's going to be a bailout, the answer is to go back to the academic institution that was the genesis of this problem and say, you're going to cover this loan forgiveness through your endowment, because these endowments are you know, multi-billion dollars, and it depends on which institution you look at, but they're, they're very, very large. And if you started to do that, I feel it would result in instant reform, self-reform from academia itself, because they would have skin in the game, so to speak. Um, another idea, I think climate change policies are designed to create the very symptoms we're seeing today with inflation, uh, with energy insecurity, grid unreliability, um, Frankenstein's like Putin that are symptoms of climate change policies. He's not causing energy prices run up. He's a symptom. And that first derivative symptom is causing second derivative symptoms like further price escalations in, in commodities. And I think it's going to get a lot worse because what we're seeing and struggling with when it comes to Russia and Putin, we're about to increase that by an order of magnitude when it comes to China when you go back and look at the math and the physics of how all these windmills and solar panels are going to have to be built and all the materials are gonna to have to be mined and processed. Uh, and the net irony in all of this is that it's all gonna result in higher CO2 atmospheric concentrations because of the net carbon footprint 
of things like wind and solar at scale are quite egregious. So climate change policies, I think another sensical approach to this is to put an immediate halt on these and assess the true math and physics and the real accounting of what's going on. I think we come up with very different policies if our aim is to improve things like atmospheric uh, CO2 levels. I think we need moderate interest rates. Uh, what does that mean? That means we need interest rates that are not negative on a real basis. So whatever inflation's at, your interest rates, your nominal interest rate has to be higher than that at the Fed. Thus, if you don't, you've got negative real interest rates. And I feel almost as if today, you know, we've got more or larger negative real interest rates than we did a year ago, even though the nominal rate has gone up because inflation has gone up more. So that is creating all kinds of distortions that we talked about um, in the, uh, the public markets. And then the last two things I would do, um, one, if you're a public union, I've got a real concern about public unions, not, not private unions, but public unions. Uh, the whole idea of a collective bargaining agreement, they, it should have a no strike clause. And the reason it should have no strike clauses is it basically, and even Franklin Roosevelt recognized this, that to, to have a public union strike against the, the individuals or the, the citizenry that it's been sworn to serve is an inherent conflict. So no strike clauses and some sort of measurable metrics. Like if you're a public teacher's union, the kids have to be able to read, write, do math. It's some moderate level of proficiency for goodness sake uh, in eighth grade, 12th grade, whatever the case might be. And then the final one is a big one. This deference, uh, some, sometimes it's Chevron deference, our deference in the courts where the regulator and the bureaucrat has complete free reign to interpret a statute or under our to interpret a, a regulation basically any way it would choose. And then those statutes and regulations are written in a cloudy manner, perhaps on purpose, to allow for wide interpretation. That is having a very negative uh, chilling effect on the free market economy. So there's what, there's six ideas there that I think would go a long way. Um, there may be simple in concept. I'm not sure how simple they would be to implement, but it would be a great start. I want to rewind for a moment <clears throat> to the education piece. Educate us on the CNX mentorship program that I've seen mentioned online a little bit. Yeah, this, the CNX Mentorship Academy is, it's just, it was an idea originally that, uh, that manifested into its first class this year that, uh, that we're getting ready to, to conclude with a graduation in, in very early June. But the idea was a simple one. It said, we care greatly about this region. This goes back to the, the original discussion when we started um, the podcast about Western Pennsylvania and Appalachia. And one of the great hallmarks of the region historically was being able to take an individual who had a work ethic and a, and a drive and say that if you want to, to make a career and a profession for yourself, not just get a job, but a, a true career and profession, you can do that in manufacturing. You can do that in energy. You can do that in this region without having to go to college for a four-year degree. Because maybe early on, coming out of high school, you're not sure what you want to study. Or maybe early on and later on, college just isn't for you. And that's a great thing. That's a great attribute and strength to have as a region. The problem that we saw was that the entire system, and when I say system, I'm talking about the whole of government, um, the educational system in, in public schools from kindergarten on up through 12th grade, um, higher education, the, the overall culture in terms of how not just the individual student, but more importantly, parents view things. If you don't go to college, you're a failure. Everything is driving the individual student to go to college. And then they get into college, either unsure of what they want to do or not prepared with you know, basic proficiency levels for college. Or worse yet, as I said, they, they take on the debt, they get through the program, and then there's not the job that they're hoping for on the back end versus something like a, a skilled trade or, or a job in manufacturing. So the idea was to take individuals that didn't have a desire that are in 12th grade of high school to go to college. They didn't have that desire. And then instead to A, make them aware of careers and professions that are available without a college degree uh, in this region. And then B, get a feel for what they like, what they don't like as much. And then once that general conceptual is set based on what they've seen, the third part of the C would be to start working on very tangible things. Here's what a resume is. 
Here's how we're gonna, we're gonna, you're gonna draft your resume. And we're gonna take three or four turns of this and you're gonna get so good at it that you're gonna be able to do this on your own for the next 30 years of your career. And then here's how you go and here's what an interview is. And here's how you prepare for an interview. And here's a mock interview. Now here's a real interview. And here's how you, when you go to these job interviews or you're looking at different job opportunities, here's how you assess on a consistent basis, option A, career A with career B when it comes to wages and benefits. What's a 401k? What's healthcare coverage worth? What's a pension? Um, what does it mean if you're working in a building trade as part of a private union versus working for a corporation versus starting your own business? So these are the, the discussions that you get into so that by the end of the calendar year of a, a class for the academy, the student basically has become much more aware of all kinds of different career and professional paths within the region that don't require a college degree. Uh, they've developed now a confidence level by being able to see in a lot of these, these visits that we're setting up, they're not just touring something, they're hands-on. So when we go to the operating engineer's visit, they're having the individual students running cranes and running backhoes to get a feel for what it's like to actually run one of these things in the outdoors. When we take them to the steam fitters, they're actually in a welding shed and actually doing some welding. That builds a tremendous amount of confidence, not just self-awareness on what that job would be like. And then they've got some tangible takeaway items in their portfolio. They have a resume. They've got a LinkedIn account. They've got the ability and the confidence to go interview. And it's been amazing. It's been amazing through that, um, that journey this past year because looking at this, A, it was amazing how many of these students were completely unaware of opportunities right within their, their region, their backyard, because again, the system has not enlightened them to those. And by the way, these are all students from rural or urban uh, economically underserved school districts. Okay, so we particularly targeted the urban and the rural because one of the special things about Western PA and the Pittsburgh region, where I'm sitting right now is in sort of suburban Pittsburgh. A half hour to the north, it's the most urban of urban areas you'll see, and the half hour to the south, it's the most rural of rural communities that you'll find, with all the advantages and all the challenges of both they come with. And so that opening of eyes, we've had some of the rural students, they had never been to downtown Pittsburgh before. So that was a complete eye-opener. Some of the urban students were completely unaware of industries like energy because they were a bit beyond the city gate, right, of, of Pittsburgh itself. And then the confidence to me, is the biggest thing. They're just um, much more confident individuals and confidence in this, in this world, right? When it comes to things like uh, risk tolerance and, and taking some calculated risks in life, they can lead to, to really great things. So I'm excited about it. The first year has been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of trial and error. Can't wait uh, to wrap up this year here at the start of June. And I really can't wait to get started with the, uh, the second year's class starting up in August uh, this year. So within those uh, the different cohorts um, regionally, how did how did the particular students get into the program? Were they applying, or did they get recommended by teachers? Did you just you know spot some kids? How did that happen? Yeah, again, the first class was more trial and error. So it was a lot of word of mouth, um, trying to describe orally instead of through something on a website or a written communication the type of student that we were looking for, uh, that type of thing, and it it worked out tremendously well. There's, there's roughly 30 uh, some odd students uh, between the male and female class combined. They're all awesome individuals, uh, really grown to, to love them all. Uh, this coming year, now we've got the benefit of a lot more infrastructure. So a lot more clarity on the CNX Foundation website as to a, you know, a, a bona fide form as to how you can nominate a student to be considered for the academy. A lot more infrastructure in terms of relationships built between administrators or guidance counselors across these targeted school districts that I mentioned that now know about and are aware of the program itself. And then frankly, the biggest one has been word of mouth reference. So whether it's the students currently in the program or the parents of, um, or the teachers that are, are watching this in the districts uh, that they attend, knowing about this now and saying, well, I've got now someone who's a junior that's going to be a rising senior that we have to get into this program next year because they would be a perfect fit. So uh, right now we've got a good problem which is uh, demand via the applicants is exceeding our capacity, but that's the problem that we wanted to have that we envisioned when we started out a year ago. I think I don't want to I don't want to go too deep into this because it's a totally derailed conversation. But some other countries, I think Germany is one example. I think Singapore is another example. Put 
kids in, in adolescence around age 12, 13, 14 onto separate tracks. Um, some of them going on to uh, more industrial oriented tracks, um, some going on to more liberal arts oriented tracks. We don't do that at all here. You're kind of filling that void a little bit. What, what are your thoughts on that, that challenge? We do not do that at all. And what we're trying to do is fill that void very, very late in the game. I mean, to get to, in the best case, in terms of time, a junior and you know, a senior typically is very late in the game, but better late than never, right? Um, why we don't do that in this country is a very interesting question. And I believe the explanations as to why we don't do that goes back to a lot of the themes talked about in Precipice in, in the book itself, which is that the educational system and specifically both you know, public education, pre-college, and then the university system in college, they are designed largely today when you look at budget, when you look at the allocation of budget to benefit the bureaucracy that runs it, to benefit uh, entities like leadership of public unions, to benefit not the student. And if you think about how budgets are accrued for our educational system and then where those budget dollars are allocated, and you look at the metrics and sort of the, the realities of it, you know, the overarching theme is we need to invest more in education. We need to invest more in our youth and our children and the next generation. And yes, that's all true. But when you look at the realities underneath it, the, the investing that's occurring is not going to the children or the students. The investing is going to many of these components or entities that we described as the value appropriators, the value consumers. Uh, of what others are doing. So it's basically a transfer from a taxpayer basically to one of these special interests, public union, government, a bureaucracy or administration within a college, et cetera. And it's proving itself out that you're going to get that occurring because you look at proficiency levels of you know, eighth grade students in our largest uh, urban school districts. I, I saw a statistic recently um, from the education department, it was 20 some odd of the largest cities and public school districts in the nation. So it's the who's who of our largest cities. The, this was eighth grade um, African-American students. So eighth grade proficiencies for African-American students. I saw math and I saw English slash reading. For math, I think the best city was Boston, I wanna say, 20 some percent proficiency was the best. That was the best, best proficiency for eighth grade African-American students in math. English reading was in the 20s as well, 20 some odd percent. I believe it was maybe Charlotte that posted that. Um, that to me is an embarrassment. That to me is a massive problem. And that to me is something that is the, the result, the consequence of this issue of the funding of education not being tailored to the student and to the citizen, but the funding of education being customized and built and designed to feed something else. And if we got back to what it's there for and basically using it to fund what it should be funding, you would have these career tracks that you spoke about, like you see in Singapore or Germany, et cetera, where I like to operate heavy equipment. Okay, well, here's that career path for you. Because Why do I like to do that? Maybe my family did that. Maybe that's just my disposition. There could be a bunch of different reasons why. On the other side, I like to read and write. Okay, well, here's, here's a career path that we can we can put you on with respect to a well-established rail of how that is going to unfold. And then maybe there's one where I'm more of a, a STEM-driven individual. I like chemistry labs and I like uh, biology. There's, there's that rail. That's not what we're doing in our system. Our system is designed to do something completely different because the end beneficiary is not who we've been, who, who we've been told to under this myth of it being the student and the taxpayer. It's instead, it's the special interest. I agree with all that. The uh, On the topic of education, I'd recommend for our listeners and uh, for you guys, I guess, uh, there's a book, Cracks in the Ivory Tower by uh, Phil Magnus and uh, Jason Brennan at Georgetown. Um, that's sort of like a public choice look at higher education that goes through sort of all the incentives for uh, administrators and the bureaucracy and higher ed and stuff. And um, all the things that you're you're describing are what they kind of go through. So would uh, definitely recommend that book. And for a provocative take on the issue, I would recommend Brian Kaplan's The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. You know, I, 
I'm a pretty avid reader and I like a lot of these policy books. I, you know, people always ask people, who's your, who's your favorite author and who influences you? Well, truth be known, I, you know, I love just classic literature. I love Steinbeck and I love, uh, you know, Orwell and, and those guys. I, current book I'm reading is Stephen King of all people and people always turn their nose down at Stephen King, but I, I sort of love his books too. But in terms of sort of the policy side, uh, and, and I'm sensing it from just the titles of these books, but you look at someone like Ayn Rand, um, you look at the Austrian School of Economics. I know Al, uh, Jordan, you were a fan of that, right? Uh, you and I have talked about that in the past. Um, Milton Friedman, Hayek, right? Adam Smith, those guys and individuals. Really in the end, they're not so much policy or economists as much as they are in certainly in the case of Rand, right? They're, they're, they're laying out a philosophy. It's a way of, of going about life. It's a way of thinking that goes way beyond dollars and cents and economic theory and all of these other things. It's almost an approach. It's almost in some ways a, a philosophy. And I sort of compare those thought leaders and the different nuances of what they advocate for and what they're, they're sort of uh, describing. I compare them more to you know, things like stoicism or you know, the Federalist Papers with Hamilton and, and, uh, and, and Madison and, and just thinking about different ways of of considering assessing the human condition. And to me, that's incredibly interesting because that can go off into all kinds of different discussions, all kinds of different applicable uh, things across society and life. Completely agree. And, and Alex is more informed than I am here, but I think something that um, some of the uh, early Austrian economics thinkers um, along the lines of Ludwig von Mises would stress is that they weren't talking about uh, money. They were talking about human behavior and decision-making and evaluating the different opportunities and, and challenges we face. Yeah, Hayek and, and von Mises, uh, to me, they are crying out and advocating for the nobility of work and the nobility of the individual. And basically the premise is right under economic theory that if you're not careful, there is a, a natural a natural uh, progression when it comes to government and to the state and to institutions where they grow either an in influence, control, budget, value appropriation to where it comes at the expense of the nobility of work, the achiever, the individual. And if you're for those things and this type of a, of a phenomenon sort of erodes that, um, there's a duty, there's a responsibility to assess that into to speak in defense of, of things that favor the former and not the latter. We're, we're getting close to our time here. I want to uh, make sure that we give you enough time to talk about your book. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that uh, you'd like our listeners to know about the book and uh, some of the ideas in it? I think that um, that overall, the book came together, really, that there's a couple things that maybe I hope that, that come across to, to the reader. One is that this is something that has been developing, as I said, over time, this, this phenomenon of creators, enablers, servers, their, their value creation, their wealth creation being appropriated by this, this fourth entity uh, in, in the leech. And it's gotten much bigger to the point where it is a, a bit of a crisis or a precipice. Um, two, a lot of the different chapters are basically built to do a deep dive into some of the major uh, entities, institutions, professions that have fallen prey to this condition to show not just what's going on individually with that individual chapter or entity, but how they're interconnected, how there's a tremendous amount of, of collaboration, coordination that's going on across government, academia, the media, the legal profession, the you know, monetary policy, and, and so on that are, are basically almost magnifying, it's creating a, a multiplier effect with its, its impact and, and its power, which is troubling. And then the third piece of this uh, that I hope people would, uh, would get out of the, the book is that um, there is a very well-established legacy history of all the great things that happen when we simply let and allow the individual to express, to achieve, to toil, to succeed, to fail, all these things that we spoke about. We know not only that our, our sort of nation and, and this republic was founded largely on that, uh, that premise when you look at the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Federalist Papers, all that stuff, but that when you let it work, when you let it go about that type of a, 
of a, of a set of, uh, of operating guidelines within the environment, tremendously positive things have happened, not just within the individuals in the nation, but frankly, to the benefit of, of the globe. So the corollary, right, if we, we continue to impede it, it's not just going to have negative consequences. We know on the flip side what the right answer is, what the right path is. We just have to get out of our own way in many of these instances and get back to what is already set up is a very powerful core set of, of fundamental beliefs, values, and, and infrastructure. So there's hope, but uh, you know it's going to take a recognition. And I, I was hoping with the book that it would help you know start to engage some discussion, some public discourse, some debate on this in a constructive manner where people might start thinking long and hard about what we're doing when it comes to some of these uh, these trends. I know one of the places people can go. You have a podcast that's associated with the book too. Do you want to just talk a little bit about? Uh, where people can go to find uh, that along with uh, some more information about the book? Sure. There's, there's a couple of, uh, of different things I've been working on. One is a, a website. It's nickdeolius.com. So just all one word, N-I-C-K-D is in David, E-I-U-L-I-I-S.com. A lot of commentary, uh, essays, thought pieces will be will be put on the website and they're, they're basically accumulated and archived. So you can give that a look and there's a, a way you can provide feedback. I'd welcome anybody that's interested in spending some time on it to, to just peruse it and, and see what you might like and be interested in and, and provide some feedback. We'd love to engage. Uh, you mentioned the podcast. It's the Far Middle podcast. It's also available, the individual episodes. It comes out weekly. It's on the nickdeolius.com website. It's also on a whole bunch of, uh, of podcast sites, uh, Spotify, uh, Amazon, et, et cetera. Uh, that's also linked on the website if you wanna, if you wanna access those. And then uh, social media, I, I am on Twitter. Uh, I do enjoy it. It's something newer to me over the past year. It's at Nick Deolius, um, also on LinkedIn, where we'll, we'll cross-post a lot of this information. So again, there's a number of different ways you can sort of see what's going on. And uh, if you so choose to, to engage, and I'd, I'd welcome the opportunity to do so. Again, that's one of the, the objectives of, of what I'm trying to get at. Last thing I want to talk about real quick, Far Middle Podcast episode number 29, dedicated to Rob Peru. The statistic you dropped, Nick, about Carew stealing home, was it seven times in 1969? That's absolutely incredible. I had no idea. I had to go. I was like, that can't be true. That must have been a career stat, but I went and looked that up. That's amazing. Yeah, he, um, you know, he obviously was very prolific in the 60s and 70s. When I was a kid in the 70s, early 80s, he was such an established player at that point, you know, looking at something like baseball cards. Or, but I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm in a National League city. So mm -hmm. I never got a chance to see Rod Carew play when he was with the, the Twins or the Angels. But I always, he's one of those players in that era. I think the 70s in baseball were the greatest era of baseball ever. I mean, you had Rod Carew and, and Pete Rose, and you had these teams, these dynasties, the, the Pirates and the Reds and the A's and the Dodgers and the Orioles. You had so many, the Yankees, right? You had so many of these teams that were just in their own right, just dynasties, the Red Sox. And, and the epic collisions, the, Royal, the Royals and the Yankees were some of the greatest games in the 70s. And nobody even thinks of the Royals because I just mentioned eight other teams that uh -huh. had great runs in the 70s. So I love 70s baseball. I miss it. I, I got to be honest with you. Yesterday was the opener for the Pirates. I had no idea and really no care in current baseball. But um, yeah, I, I do enjoy 70s. And Rod Crew is one of my, my favorite uh, players all time in baseball. Well, as, as someone who grew up in Pittsburgh in the 1970s, it would make sense that that you view that era as being the pinnacle because that was the Pirates' best era. It was. Well, we haven't had a good era since, but yeah, we're still waiting. Hope springs eternal. Great. Our guest today has been Nick Dulas. Nick, thank you for your time today. Thank you, gentlemen. 